Well, good morning. It is good to see you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 as we wrap up our series in the book of Colossians here this Sunday and then prepare for Advent season, which is upon us. Now, I'm guessing that you got some time with family, probably some of you, maybe many of you got time with family over Thanksgiving, yes? So time with family can be a lot of different ways, right? There can be a lot of interesting things that happen with family. I'll tell you one interesting thing that happened with my family. We got my son uh, some new shoes for uh, just after Christmas, after Thanksgiving, not Christmas, coming up because he needs some new shoes. We got him some new shoes. There was a deal. So we got him some new shoes. Then when we went to put them on him one morning, he decided he was not interested in the new shoes. He did not like the new shoes, right? And so we're thinking, okay, how are we going to manage this? And I think that I am dad of the year for a moment because I have a great idea, right? So what I tell him is, I say, Deacon, I said, did you know that these shoes, they're from Carter, so they say Carter's on the bottom. And I said, but Carter starts with car. So it's like they say car on the bottom, which means these are driving shoes. When you wear these, you can drive dad's car and sit in the driver's seat. And he immediately loved the shoes. And I was like, yes, I'm so good at this. And so we, we, we go from I'm not putting on the shoes, I'm not putting on the shoes to put the shoes on me, let's go, right? And so we put the shoes on and I go, you can go out in the garage to the car and you can sit and daddy's got a few things to do, but just sit in the car and you can, you know, you can drive, drive the car. And he knows, pretend to drive the car, right? So he's sitting in the driver's seat. He's having a great time. And this is going gangbusters because I got the shoes on. We're ready to get out the door where we need to go. He's enjoying driving the car uh, in, the, in dad's car. And then I say, now it's actually really time to go. And so I said, okay, buddy, let's get over in the other car and let's jump in your seat, to which he jumps in the driver's seat of that car because he's got his driving shoes on and he says, I'm driving. And I said, oh, buddy, why don't you let dad handle this one? Why don't, why don't I drive the, uh, on this leg of the journey? And he says, no, I've got my driving shoes on. And I'm like, my plan has backfired already. I see my problem. And so finally I convinced him, I said, so then I'm like, well, how am I getting him out of the driver's seat? So what I came up with here, which was not nearly as good, was to say, buddy, if you drive, the police might pull us over, at which point he decides that the police pulling you over is the same as going to jail. So he says, they're going to take me to jail. They're going to take me to jail. He's screaming, they're going to take me to jail, and I can't get him to stop. So now he's in his car seat, bawling, because he's pretty convincing. And I'm like, no, they don't take you to jail for that. He's like, but police take you to jail. I was like, no, no, they don't take you to jail for that, buddy. So I had a major dad fail this weekend around family time for Thanksgiving. Now, my guess is that you probably had some interesting stuff happen at your house as well, right? Maybe it wasn't your son wouldn't put on his shoes. Uh, but, you know, whenever we get together for Thanksgiving, I was thinking about you this week and praying for you as Thanksgiving was coming. And just recognizing that, you know, Thanksgiving can bring with it all manner of interesting family relationships or perhaps other relationships. They can bring up hurt. They can bring up a sense of loss that we feel. You know, just this week as a church family, we lost two really long-time members here. Carol Bubb and Jane Meese went home to be with the Lord. And, you know, we, we feel that. We feel the loss of that. June, I'm sorry, I said Jane, I apologize, forgive me. June, Meese, thank you, honey. Uh, but we feel the loss of that, you know, and around those tables for Thanksgiving, you know, we are feeling that, the weight of that. And so we know that when it comes time for celebration, and I hope many, maybe many of you just had Thanksgiving without a hiccup, and it was awesome, and it was great. 
but probably some of us had Thanksgivings where we just felt the weight of perhaps challenging relationships or perhaps a sense of loss or things that were once there that aren't there any longer. And so we were wrestling through that. We were walking through that and trying to figure that out and, and navigate that. And some of us, here's, here's where kind of the rubber meets the road for today's passages. I'm guessing that perhaps for some of you, some of the strain that you feel perhaps in relationships in your family is related to the fact that you're on different pages as it pertains to who God is and what he's done in Jesus. You know, and my, if you have that family situation, my guess is you felt that. You felt the, the difficulty or the challenge that comes into play when someone you love very much disagrees with you about the most important thing in life, which is who is God? Does he exist? Who is Jesus? What does that mean? And if you've had that family situation, then you know what a, what a challenge it can present and what a sense of strain can be there. And that makes sense just based on what we've learned in the book of Colossians. It makes sense that that strain is there, right? Because what have we seen so far? We've seen that Paul goes to great lengths to tell us that Christ is unrivaled. That he is unrivaled in his nature. He's unrivaled in his power. He's unrivaled in his goodness. He's unrivaled in his mercy and his love. And so we've seen that this unrivaled Christ uh, is, is who we worship. And if that's the case, if Christ truly is all those things that we've seen him in Colossians to be, and then what that means is that to come to him is to begin to have your life orbit around him. What it means is that someone who's unrivaled in that kind of a way is not someone that you just look to to get a, like, get out of jail free card. Someone that's that unrivaled is someone who has a gravitational pull. And what happens is the more you come into relationship with him, the more your life begins to revolve around him. And, and he really does. You begin to orbit around Christ and everything about you begins to orbit around him. The way you think about your work and your family and the way you think about what's meaningful in life and what is important in life, all of it begins to orbit around him. And when you are, when you have a family member, someone you love, someone you care about who doesn't orbit around him, that can create real challenge. Would you agree with that? It can create real tension. It can create, you know, difficult moments and situations. And so Paul has spent all this time with us in Colossians really telling us Christ is unrivaled. And you need to understand that. Your life needs to begin to orbit around that. And so then he began to tell us, like, if, if you are orbiting around him, here's what that looks like for you. It looks like being a person who treats others who are in the family of faith with love and humility and grace it looks like being a person who puts away things that are immoral. And it looks like putting on things that are good and righteous and true. And so he's, he spent just the bulk of this journey through the, the letter to the Colossians talking about those things. And now what he's going to do is we come to chapter 4. And he's going to say his parting words to this church. What he's going to begin to visit is how do, you, how do you engage those relationships that have a bit more tension in them? How do you engage in those relationships with people who don't agree with you about who Jesus is, who have a different, different perspective on that altogether? And he's gonna try and offer us some thoughts about how we can be most helpful to those who are exploring faith in Christ. And that may mean exploring sort of vigorously. It may mean exploring very moderately. But how do we become people who are useful and helpful to others who are, who are examining who Christ is and what faith in him would look like, what it would mean for their lives. That's what he's going to do. Now, he's, we're going to focus on just verses 2 through 6 in chapter 4. And there, there are verses after that, but they essentially amount to a lot of uh, really 
good affirmations of people in the church at Colossae saying, you have been faithful, keep being faithful. Uh, you have been steadfast, keep being steadfast. I love you. And, and he deals a little bit of that. But what I want us to focus on is really the beginning of chapter four, verses two through six, where he talks about things. And we're gonna read that in a minute. But before we do, let me say this as well. Here, here's my guess. Now, there are many of you who are with us week after week who are not followers of Jesus. And, and of course, we're so glad that you're part of, that you belong here. You're, you're among us. You're examining faith in Jesus. And I recognize that when I say, hey, what kind of person must we be to help someone who's examining faith in Christ see him for who he really is? When I say that, I recognize that probably many of you uh, would say, you know, I haven't chosen to not come to Christ because of the behavior of, of a Christian. And so that, that it's, maybe it's more around scientific things or maybe it's more around this thing or that thing. And so you perhaps are thinking right now, this doesn't really land with me. You guys can talk all you want about the kind of people you should be in order to help others know Christ or encounter him. And that's not really gonna move the needle for me. And I'll say a couple things. One, I recognize that there are many other objections just than how, how a Christian might help be introductory in our, in our way of being and how we live. I recognize that. But two, let me also push back a little bit and say this. For those of you who, again, I, you're, you're with us regularly. You're part of us, right? Let me say this. My guess is that, that your choice to not come into Christ actually has more to do with the behavior of others than you think. And here's why I say that. I've had a lot of these kinds of conversations and I've yet to have the conversation with the person who has rejected the claims of Christ for purely reason-based reasons, for purely logical reasons. Almost every time I begin one of these conversations, we usually start in the realm of logic and reason and science and we're having the conversation, but almost invariably the conversation usually ends up steering towards an experience that was had somewhere in the past that usually was someone who's a Christian not acting very much like how a Christian should act and causing harm, causing difficulty, uh, maybe derailing some things in ways. And often that hurt, that difficulty is actually what led to the journey away from Christ or perhaps to hold him at arm's length. So I simply want to say this. Having had that conversation a lot, I find that for many of us, for many who are saying, you know, my rejection of the claims of Christ really has very little to do with the behavior of those who claim him, I have found that to often not truly be the case, that there has been something in the background. So my hope is perhaps as we examine what Paul says here, that if we were to live this out as a church, that perhaps we could be, antidote is not the right word, but I don't have a better one. Perhaps we could be a bit of an antidote to those past experiences. Now, the last thing I wanna say, kind of in that, in that realm, right? If, if you are not a follower of Jesus, the last thing I wanna say is this. Often when we have these conversations, you would begin from the place of saying, I, I don't believe in the claims of Christ and because I don't believe them then, like just saying to me, Christians live this way is not gonna really, you know, again, move the needle for me. But could I ask just for one day for a switch of perspective? Here's what I'm gonna ask for. For one day, and selfishly, you'll be helpful to us, okay? Uh, for one day, let's switch the perspective and just imagine for a moment 
let's make the assumption, that we're all looking for what is true. Like if there is something that is true about God and the world, uh, that we're, look, we're all looking for that, right? If God exists, we want to know that. If that's a true thing, if that's reality, we want to, we want to come to that understanding. If, if it's not, if he doesn't exist, we would want to know that, right? We wouldn't just want to blindly accept, right? So we want to know what the nature of truth is. So let's just for today, if you assumed that, the claim, that, that God is real and that the claims of Christ are real, that he is the one and only way to access God, if you were to assume that then, then my question for you is, if you're not a follower of his, is what kind of person would you want to journey alongside you, assuming that you wanted to come to the knowledge that this is true, and therefore you did want to discover it, what kind of person would help you get to that discovery? What kind of person would help you move from unbelief to this thing that is true? Who would you want to walk on that journey with you? Now, from that lens, examine Colossians with us, and then Maybe you came with a brother, a sister, a friend, a spouse who is a follower of Jesus. And just examine this with us and tell us if it's true or not. Tell us if, if it resonates with you. If this kind of person who acted in this kind of way would actually be useful to you in coming to the knowledge of the truth. Is, it, is that fair? Makes sense? Okay. So then for those of you who are followers of Jesus, where the text hits us today, it just invites us to kind of do a bare bones assessment of ourselves and to ask, do I care that there are people who don't know Christ? Do I care? And if I do care, will I orient my life in such a way that I will be a part of helping them encounter the living Christ? With me? Let's look at Colossians chapter four, verses two through six. I wanna point out four phrases from the text today. There's much more that we could do, but four phrases from the text that will hopefully help us answer that question. How can I be most useful to people who are exploring faith in Christ? So Colossians four, beginning in verse two, says this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, like I said, I, I want to point you to four phrases from this text that I think are really useful to us in answering the question, how can I become helpful to those who are exploring faith in Christ? And the first phrase I want to point you to is right there in verse 2, where it says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So Paul begins this little section of the letter, and he is saying to them, I want you to begin to, I want you to be steadfast in prayer, being, and I want you to be watchful in prayer, and he includes thanksgiving in prayer there. Now, in any other context, we might hear this as Paul essentially saying to us, hey, be a praying person, which is good, right? Yes? Be a praying person. And you know, instructing them in how they might pray and what that might look like. And so the thing that we need to recognize is the context informs us a little bit about what Paul means when he says, I want you to be steadfast in prayer. You see, he's gonna follow this with all these instructions about, hey, I want you to be actively engaging with people who are not in the family of faith. I want that to be part of your life. In fact, I want it to be part of your everyday life. And here's what you need to know in order to do that well. 
and to do it effectively. And so in light of that context, then what we can understand is what Paul is saying is not just, hey, be a praying person. What he's saying is if you want to be effective in helping others know Jesus, then you need to have the kind of relationship with him that is worth having so that others would look at you and say, that's something I would want. In other words, have a deep relationship with Christ. Have one that goes beyond the surface. Have one that affects your everyday. We just talked a minute ago about that when you know the unrivaled Christ, if he truly is who Colossians says he is, what that means is you begin to orient everything in your life around him. Your choices about who you date, your choices about the way you live in your marriage, the choices about what you do with your money, all of it begins to orbit around him and it can't help but, but be that way. And so when Paul says, be steadfast and be watchful in prayer. What he's saying to the Colossians is he's saying, number one, steadfast means be regular. Be regularly talking to God. Have a conversation with God that is ongoing and constant. And then he says, be watchful in it. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What, what does that mean? What are we supposed to be watching when we're in? What does it mean to be watchful in prayer? Does it mean to be alert? Yes, in part, it means to be alert. But what he's saying is, I want you to learn as you go into prayer to, to keep your eyes upon God, to have his eyes regarding the circumstances in your life. In other words, the thing that's being kept watch on is the world around you. And so that as I go to prayer, I'm watchful in prayer as I begin to acquire God's perspective on all the things going on around me in the world, on all my circumstances. That's what it means to be watchful in prayer. So when Paul begins this section, it says, be steadfast and be watchful in prayer and do it with thanksgiving. What he's really saying is, if you want to be useful to those who are examining faith in Christ and wondering who he is and wondering if what he said is really true, then you need to have a deep relationship with him so that as they engage with you, they would actually see what relationship with him looks like. Are, are you with me? You follow? Let's use an analogy. Maybe this will be helpful, right? If you were examining, if you wanted to buy a car, and you were trying to figure out if this was a, the right car to buy and a good car to buy, would you rather talk to someone who's owned that car for two years and driven it every day and read the owner's manual backwards and forwards and knows every bell and whistle on the car, knows what every button does, <clears throat> knows exactly how to get optimal performance out of it, has, has, has thoroughly experienced the car, would you rather talk to that person about whether or not you should own the car or would you rather talk to the person who purchased it two years ago and left it in their garage and never drove it? Which person would you rather talk to about whether or not you should own the car? You see, the analogy holds true, right? If you want to be helpful, I mean, it begins with just having the kind of relationship with God yourself that is deep and meaningful and enjoyable and not cursory, not just something you slap on top of the rest of your life, but something around which the rest of your life orbits. That's, that's where we begin. That's where Paul begins with us. Now, you've probably, all in, you've probably all encountered this, right? I mean, I use the car analogy. But look, just as a believer, this holds, this holds true for us. And when you go anywhere, you love when somebody who is an expert in something can tell you about that thing, don't you? Because you recognize like, oh, they have, they have content to offer that is meaningful, that is significant. And I wonder, here's the question. Let's, let's just ask the brass tacks question of ourselves and be really honest. Do I have the kind of relationship with God? Do I have the kind of relationship with God 
that, some, that I could actually say, you, you should want this kind of relationship. You should want what I have. Or do I have the kind of relationship with God that perhaps is tangential to my life? It sits over here. I call on it when I need it. Perhaps I pick it up from time to time. And if I was really honest, I couldn't say to someone else, you, sh- you should want what I have. Or am I experiencing a greater, a greater depth than that? That's what we want for you. So much so. So that's the first thing that we see. Now let's look at the second thing, okay? The second phrase then is that God may open to us a door for the word. Look at verse three where it says this. It says, at the same time that you're praying, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now that, that phrase should be uh, familiar to you if you've been with us because in the book of Colossians, he's used the phrase that Christ is the mystery of God or that he reveals the mystery of God. And now here he's saying the mystery of Christ. All he means by that is this, that God has from the very beginning had a plan to save the world and that Christ was at the center of that plan. But that was a mystery for many ages. There was general, there was a, a, a slow revealing of what, how that plan was going to get played out, but no one fully knew what God's plan was about how to save the world until Christ came. And when he came, he revealed the mystery of God's plan to save people from sin and death. That's that when he says the mystery of Christ, that's what he's talking about. And so what does Paul say? He says, I want you to pray, Colossians. Don't just, don't just be praying for yourselves, right? I want you to be praying for us that God would open to us a door for the word. In other words, that he would open to us an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When Paul says that, I don't think we, we hear, we heard as we read it, that he's in prison, right? Which is, by the way, if you're in prison, is this what you would be praying for? I might be praying, pray that the guards don't beat me tomorrow. Pray that they feed me. Pray that I survive. Pray that I get out of here. And Paul doesn't pray that. He's, pray not that they'd open the cell door to let me out. Pray that they would open a door to the word for me. That's Paul's prayer when he's in prison, which is incredibly convicting, yes? And challenging. And so he says, pray that there would be an open door for the word. Now, here's what I think. I don't think Paul just means, pray that circumstantially a door would be open, like that the guard would linger in my cell and I could talk to him about Jesus. I think what he's saying is not just pray that the circumstances would align so that I'd have an opportunity to share the gospel, but pray that there would be a door open in the hearts of those that I interact with so that they might hear and respond to the gospel. Because here's what Paul knows. Paul knows that ultimately salvation is a work of God. It's not a work of man. It's something the Holy Spirit has to come in and do in us. And because that's true, because we can't be saved unless God moves, because that's true, and Paul knows it, he is praying, God, open a door in the hearts of these people that they might hear and believe and respond. And so, one, we learn pray. Pray. My guess is, my hope is, you have somebody that you love that is not a follower of Jesus. And if you don't, you should. Pray, because God's spirit has to move. No one responds to the gospel unless God's spirit draws them and moves in them to respond to it. We can talk till we're blue in the face. I mean it, we can talk till we are blue in the face and have all the greatest evangelistic strategies in the world. But unless God opens a door in the hearts of people, they will not respond. Now here's what that tells me. 
If that's indeed what Paul is praying here, not just God open a door circumstantially so that I'll have opportunity to talk about Jesus, but would you move and open a door in the hearts of people, in the hearts of men, in the hearts of women, so that they would hear this truth and absolutely believe it? Would you move God and do that? If that's the case, it tells me a couple things. One, it tells me be patient. Be patient. God is on the move. Look, to return to the car analogy, you are not a used car salesman that has to close the deal. The gospel is not a great bargain that you need to get somebody to take. Be patient. If you want to help someone who's exploring faith in Christ, like here's what most, here's what a lot of us do. We share it once, we share it twice, maybe we even share it three times, and then we say, well, I'm done. That's enough. And we bail on it. Now, I know there are times where we might share the gospel with someone over the, you know, the, the cashier at Target. And that's good. We should do that, right? And it may just be a, here's an opportunity. Let me share it and leave it in God's hands and he'll do with that what he will. But quite often and more frequently, the people we're sharing with the gospel with are people in our family, people in our neighborhood, people at work, people we love, people we care about, people we interact with day to day, yes? And if that's the case, then church, the people that are gonna be most helpful to those people who are exploring faith in Christ to, to greater or lesser degrees are gonna be people who are really patient and people who don't treat the gospel like a sales pitch, but understand that people have questions and everyone has different questions. People have difficulties, their hurdles are trying to get over with and sit and listen. It means a lot more listening, a lot less talking, right? It means you don't need to perfect your elevator sales pitch, Right? But what you do need to do is you need to care about people and you need to be present with them and you need to be patient. I love, too, that he reminds us that the gospel had a mysterious element to it. Right? The mystery of Christ, he says here. In other words, that this, it wasn't always plain how God was going to save the world. And yes, now he's revealed it in Jesus. But if it was a mystery for generations, is it understandable that someone might have a tough time coming to grasp with this is how God saved people? Right? That seems pretty understandable to me. Here's what happens. This is, this is like a bad habit that Christians get into, is that we've come to faith, whether it was two days ago or 20 years ago, we've come to faith that somewhere along, somewhere along the line, and when we did, somewhere along the way, we became convinced that everyone should understand this as if we had no trouble understanding it. And we, we lack patience with hard questions. Do you remember? I mean, some of us came to faith as kids, and so maybe we don't remember as much the journey, but some of you came to faith as adults, and you remember how challenging that was, yes? You remember what a long journey that was. Yeah, if you, don't, if, if you came to faith as, when you were really young, let me encourage you, you need to be friends with people who came to Jesus when they were 30, 40, 50, because it's a very different kind of a story. And it teach, it reminds you that the journey is usually, it's usually pretty long. The journey to faith, it's usually pretty long. It's usually filled with a lot of questions. And usually someone was very patient and said, I'll walk with you. I'll walk with you on this. What, what questions do you have? And they were good, by the way, they were good at not at every turn feeling like they had to give some pat answer to a really hard question. 
We are so fast to want to give some formulaic answer to whatever difficult question someone is asking. I'm not saying don't have thoughtful responses to legitimate questions. You should have thoughtful responses to legitimate hard questions. But I'm also saying you don't need to rescue people from their questions by having a simple, easy answer at every turn. Sit with them in it. Process it with them. Listen to their questions. Affirm those questions. Be patient. That's the first thing I take from this thought that he's saying, you know, pray for an open door for the gospel. The second thing that it makes me think is that if I'm going to pray God open a door for the word, for me to speak the word, then I need to also, I, I can't pray that and not have an open door to my life and an open door to my home. That it is false of me to say to God, open a door for the word and then to not open the door to my home so that people who do not believe would not find that they are invited in and welcome there. And that includes this church. One of our hopes and dreams for this church, you, you may or may not know this, one of our hopes and dreams is that there would be many, many, many more people who actually don't believe in Jesus here. I know that sounds odd, but it's our great hope that this, that this space, every time we gather, would be filled with more and more people who are going, I'm just asking questions. And we would say, yeah, you're in the right spot. Right, that all of us are, some of us have believed, we've crossed a starting line, if you will, to say, yeah, yeah, I, I have, I've placed my faith in Jesus. I believe that he is who he says he is. And yet we're still in process, are we not? For how to live in that, how to walk that out, how to do that every day. And, and some of us are just on the other side of that starting line. We haven't come to a place where we've said, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And yet we're asking questions, we're examining. It's really not that much different. It's just the difference of where on that timeline, where on that spectrum we find ourselves as we're asking those, as we're asking those questions, right? One of our great hopes as a church, I mean, it's why we do programs like Alpha. We're trying to create places for these kinds of conversations to happen all over the place. And we want you, those of you who are followers of Jesus, to get increasingly comfortable having those conversations. And if I can just be honest with you as your pastor, and part of my job is to assess how we're doing, we are not good at this. This is an area where we have a lot of growing to do. God is calling you to be courageous. He's calling you to have deep relationships with people who are asking hard questions and to walk with them in it and to sacrifice your time. Look, you're probably not going to get thrown in jail like Paul did for the sake of the gospel. But you display the meaningfulness of the gospel in how much you are willing to sacrifice for it to be spread. You may never go to prison, but do you sacrifice your time? Do you open up your home? Do you make space intentionally, thoughtfully in your life for people who are asking hard questions and do you engage with them? Now, I recognize that assumes that they want you in their life, that like they want to be your friend. I can't, I can't speak for that part, right? But let's just assume, here's, here's, here's the challenge that I'll throw out to you. Your home should be the warmest, safest place on your block. If you have other Christians on your block, make it a competition. Nothing wrong with that. I like a little good competition, right? Your home should be the warmest, safest place on your block. People should be drawn to it. They should wonder what's going on in there. What is it about that home that like the door seems open always? People can just come and go and like, why is it that when I'm there, I feel really loved? And the answer is because Christ rules and reigns in that space. 
And when Christ rules and reigns, the people who are underneath that rule and reign are filled with warmth and love and patience and boldness and goodness and righteousness. And they don't just get blown by the wind in every little direction by whatever trend is in the society or culture, that they are steadfast, immovable, and they are steadfast and immovable, not just in their love for him, but in their love for you, regardless of what you feel or think about Christ. They will walk with you. So the question is, is my home that kind of home? Challenged me all week to be thinking about that. How am I being strategic about having an open door? If I'm gonna pray, God, open the door of hearts, is the door of my home open? And is the door of my life open so that people might be close to me, a part of that? The, the next phrase that I want us to look at here in the text is this. He says in verse four, that I may make it clear. So again, he's just talked about the word. He's talked about the mystery of Christ and he's saying, I'm in prison on account of that. And pray, Colossians, that I would, that I would make God's word clear. Now, I love that because here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I don't wanna cloud the gospel with any other thing. Now, Paul is a pretty bright guy. He planted a lot of churches. He wrote a lot of the scriptures. So is Paul really saying that he's concerned about his ability to clearly communicate the gospel? That he's like, I'm just not sure how to say it. I doubt that's what Paul's getting at, right? So then what could he possibly be getting at? I think what Paul is saying is, when he says, pray that I would communicate it clearly, is not, I doubt my ability to be able to speak the gospel, but rather what he's saying is, I know that in any scenario where I am trying to help others who are examining faith in Christ, I know that what often happens is that other things come in the way and cloud the gospel right? They make it cloudy. It could be my own ego, my own sense of wanting to maintain a feeling of superiority spiritually, my self-righteousness. It could be any number of things that will ultimately cloud the gospel. And Paul knows that none of those things can get in the way because it's too important a message. And so a couple things here, right? A couple things. Number one, I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us. Uh, we have to know, one, we do have to know how to speak the gospel clearly. Paul may not have had any reservations about his ability to speak it clearly, but I'm guessing that some of us do. And this is something we need to know how to do. If you follow Jesus, if you're his, you need to know how to clearly explain the story of Jesus to people. Right? You need to be able to say to folks, can't you feel that something is wrong in the world? Can't you feel that something's wrong in, in, in us? Something is off, something's not right, that something is sin, we've rebelled against God. And it's a problem. But here's the great news, it's a problem that God sent his son to solve. Through the life of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, he fixes what is broken. He takes what was, what was lost, what was hopelessly separated from God, and he restores it. That's what, the, that's what the life and death and resurrection of Jesus has done. His death paid the penalty that I should have paid. His resurrection is a guarantee. It's a guarantee that God will never reject anyone. Who's used, that, that death can actually be defeated. And that if you'll just believe you don't have to do anything. If you will believe that Jesus did that for you, he will give you a new kind of life now because he'll put his spirit inside of you, which is crazy. He'll put his spirit in you and he'll give you a new kind of life right now. 
and then he'll give you a new life forever with him. We need to know how to clearly explain to people what Jesus has done and to tell a story. That's one version of it, but don't overcomplicate it. Here's what everybody does. They turn the gospel into a series of theological propositions that are really secondary issues rather than just talking about Jesus. Rather than being simple, the gospel is not complex. Are there complex theological concepts and things that we examine? Yeah, absolutely. The gospel is not complex. The gospel is the good news that God, through the resurrection of his son, through the death and resurrection of his son, has saved us and just have to believe. All the other theological examination, that can come later. This, now I want to speak to one other side of that. The other way we cloud, another way I think we cloud the gospel regularly, and let's just be honest about this, the other way we do that is we get really hung up on the things going on in people's lives and act as if, either through our actions or through our words, act as if somehow until they get some of those things cleaned up or righted that, that they can't perhaps come to Christ. They're like, you know, whatever your issue is in sexuality, once you kind of deal with that and perhaps accept God's perspective on that, then maybe you can come and believe in Jesus. Whatever your perspective is on this issue or that thing, once you kind of get some of that shored up, maybe you're not treating your spouse very well, once you kind of shore that up a little bit, then maybe you'll be ready to come to Jesus. And friends, that is making things that are secondary primary. What God invites, look, if you came to Jesus, then anybody can come to Jesus. You need to keep that perspective. If you did, then nobody can't come. That's a really bad double negative in bad English, but you get what I'm saying. We need to not cloud the gospel by making secondary things primary things. The primary thing is the death and resurrection of Jesus and faith in him. God will handle all the other things in a life once he becomes the center of that life. Because you've experienced this, haven't you? It is the, here, let me just give fair warning. If you come to Jesus and he takes up residence in you, you are no longer going to be in control. And it is scary. Because all of a sudden, he's in charge and he starts changing things. You didn't give him permission to change. Desires start changing. Ideas start changing. Habits start changing. Things that you thought you'd never do, now you're doing. Things you thought you always wanted to do, now you no longer have a taste for them. You don't want to do them anymore. And it is the weirdest thing to have, to have the king of the universe sitting on the throne of your heart and controlling you. It feels like an out-of-body experience at times. I mean, talk to anyone who's walked with Jesus and they will tell you this. I feel out of control yet in the safest way and I don't know how to explain it. It is the weirdest, strangest, craziest experience to say God gets a hold of you and you are, you feel at times like you are spinning out. He will take you places you never dreamed or wanted to go. And the next thing you know, you're there and you're doing what he told you. It is mind-blowing. But Christians, that happens once he is inside and sitting on the throne. That's, that's how that transpires. So don't worry about the secondary things. Let God take care of that. He will. And let me just say for, again, our friends who are, you know, you're exploring faith in Jesus, it's really fun. 
It is, I mean, I, I'm a bit of, maybe I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie kind of, but I, 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 I kind of am addicted to the feeling of being not in control of my life. But the only time I want that feeling is when I also know that it's Jesus who is in control because then I feel that weird mix of like I'm completely safe and completely out of control. And there is nothing like it. I don't know anywhere else you can go for it. That's probably feeding addictive behaviors. I don't know if I should be reinforcing that. All right, so then the question there for us, just to, just to center it, and then we're gonna do one last question. Can I make the gospel clear? Church, can you make the gospel clear? You need to be able to do that. The last phrase is down in verse six, and he says this, is let your speech always be gracious. And then he gives a qualifier, like an explaining remark about that, when he says seasoned with salt. Now that's an interesting idea, right? It's an interesting word picture when he says, I want your speech, the things you say, to be seasoned with salt. Well, let's ask ourselves, what's Paul getting at and why would this be helpful to someone who's examining faith in Jesus? What he's essentially saying is, I want you to, I want your speech, your language, the things you say to be filled with kindness. So let's examine, if we want to say, what does it mean to let our speech always be gracious? Number one, we need to recognize the phrase always, Right? which is challenging, yes? He didn't say sometimes when I feel like it, he says, let my speech always be gracious. The next word we need to understand what it means is the word gracious. Is the word gracious, right? What is, what is the root of gracious? What's the root word of that? Grace, right? And what is grace? Grace is unmerited, undeserved kindness. That's what grace is. Unmerited, undeserved kindness. So when Paul says, let your speech always, always be gracious, what he's saying is you need to speak to people with undeserved kindness, right? That person who is just mean and nasty to you at work, you need to speak to them with undeserved kindness. In other words, speak with kindness always, whether or not you think the person you're speaking to deserves it or not. Be affirming, be loving, be gracious, be kind, and here's what I love, the qualifier when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What he's essentially saying is, I want you to, your speech to be so uniquely gracious, so undeservedly kind, that people would find that your speech is almost like something they can't get enough of. Because like some of you had Thanksgiving dinner, what did you put on the turkey when it was a little bland? Salt, first service, somebody said gravy, and I said, well, okay, yeah. You got me. But go with me here. You put salt on it. Why did you put salt on it? Because salt adds flavor, right? Or maybe you can think about it this way. I know it's, until I moved here, potato chips were not a thing. Potato chips are a thing here, right? I think we've become an Utz's family. Forgive me if you're Martins or whatever you might be, right? Before we moved here, I didn't, you know, Lay's. That's all I knew, which is like anathema. That's like a sin, right? <laughs> but Utz's, we have found, right? And why can you not eat just one Utz's potato chip? Because the dang salt on it, right? And you eat one and you want another one. And, you, and at some point, somebody has to take the bag out of your hands and say, you may have no more, right? Why? Because they're seasoned with salt. What if your speech was seasoned with salt? What if it was so gracious, so kind, so affirming? I don't mean flattering, empty flattery. But what if you were so good at affirming and speaking with kindness, that your speech was like, a, was like an Utz's potato chip. That people are like, I need more. I need more of what you have to say. 
let's be honest. Like, right, the opposite of that, the person who's, let me just say, this is not natural for me, okay? Now, for some of you, you're like, yes, I love this, right? I see always be gracious. Always let your speech be seasoned with salt. And here's why it's challenging for me. This is not always easy. Is that one of my primary spiritual gifts is wisdom and discernment. What that means is I often will engage a situation or a person and I will see perhaps what might be a little off in that situation, might be a little off going on, perhaps maybe what is a half-truth or something that's not quite aligning. That is kind of comes with the territory with that spiritual gift mix. So what that means is I grew pretty poor in the exercise of this gift over many years because rather than being, letting my speech be deeply affirming, I was finding that my speech was deeply critical because I was discerning things that were a little bit off and I always felt the need to point it out. If you want people to not want to talk to you, let me give you a recipe. Because that's it. That's the recipe. But man, by God's grace, scriptures like this and people like my wife who are really good at this and a really good friend from seminary who's just like really gifted at affirming people, just being around them, which by the way, if you're kind of like me and this isn't natural for you, you need to be around people who are really good at it because you'll learn a lot. And just watching, it has been so much fun to figure out, I treat it like it's a game, but I kind of treat everything like a game, right? I treat it like it's a game, like how affirming can I be? Like, can I, how, like, over the top, gracious, and, and hopefully not ridiculously so, but like, how can I, how can I go over the top in letting my speech be seasoned with salt and be gracious and kind and affirming? And I try and do it with cashiers at the checkout line. I try and do it with people that I encounter every day, uh, you know, just out and about. I mean, that, that's like a goal for me because I have to be intentional about it because I'm not naturally great at it, Right? So join me in the fun, because it's a lot of fun to figure, and you'll find that it really is like affirming, kind, undeserved, undeservedly kind speech. That's what gracious speech is. It is, it is, it, it's, you can't get enough of it, right? And then you, here's what you'll find. You can't get enough of speaking it the more you kind of begin to do it. And I'm learning. I'm still such a rookie at it. But, you know, join me in it because it really is a fun journey. So here's what I'll say. And then uh, we're going to close. Uh, my hope and prayer. In fact, worship team, you guys can come on up. And I saved us a little time on the end here because what I wanted to do is I, I recognize that as we talk about this, a couple things come to mind. I, I think we need some time for praying. And so I just want to make some time for praying. So our prayer team's going to be up here. Love for you to come and receive prayer. If you want to pray wherever you are, you can. But man, let me encourage you. And there's a couple things I think that would be really worth being prayed about for today. Number one is I recognize coming out of the holiday that we just had. Many of you might be experiencing that feeling of loss or some brokenness in a relationship, just some difficulty there, that tension. Whether it's because you're a believer and they're not or whatever it may be, you're experiencing some of that. And you just may need some prayer for that, right? We'd love to pray for you about that. And where God is saying that the cool thing about Thanksgiving is Christmas is coming on the, on the tail end of it pretty quick. So you often get the same people around the same tables. Yes? And you're like, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. So let us pray for you. Uh, and then the second thing I was thinking about is, is not just that, but also some of you, here's my hope as I prayed for you this week, is that you might respond to this by recognizing if you're not, if you're not doing this, if you're not praying, God, open a door for the word and you're not being intentional about helping people who are examining faith in Jesus, 
if you're not being intentional about engaging that, which is part of God's heart for you, is that you would do this. This is not like a for some people thing, you know? This is not some Christians should do this and then others will do other things. This is one everybody's supposed to do. You might just need help getting better at it. So come and let us pray with you. Because at the end of the day, what will, the only thing that we'll do is just a work of God's spirit. As God's spirit moves and works, the first thing he's gotta do is convince you that you need to more deeply love people who are not believers. That's, that's where it begins. God, help me to see what you see. Help me to love what you love. He sent his son. He sent his son so that all of us would, could have life. Could have life. And he wants you to be a part of helping others find that. So, as I said, you can come and pray with us up here. We're just gonna sing these two songs. So just come right away. We'll just use these two songs. We'll sing together. We'll worship the Lord. And then we'll be dismissed. But come and receive prayer if you would. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come before you now. We thank you for your word. We pray that we've heard it rightly. And we pray that you would send your spirit to move among us and in us. More of your work would take place in us so that we'd be more like you and have your heart capture it. Lord, I know, just I, I know that no sermon ultimately is what convinces anybody to live a certain way. But your spirit can take the words now, it can take it, it can land it in us, and it can do the work. And so we pray, pray that it would. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand, let's sing together, come for prayer if you'd like.